Welcome to the Pre-Hype Podcast. If you're new to the show, let me give you a little introduction. I'm your host, Henrik Gordelin, and I spent my career building new ventures, both as a co-founder, as an investor, and as an advisor. In this podcast, I'm inviting really smart entrepreneurial people out for a walk and talk while we get some coffee and talk about some of the skills and the tools and mindsets they use to solve problems in a scalable way. I hope you enjoy today's show. I was keen to kind of like uh, invite you out because, I, as you know, I try to talk to people who I think solve a problem in a scalable and entrepreneurial way. You got the wrong guy. I, don't I know. know what I'm doing here. I couldn't find anybody, so... <laughs> And the thing I wanted to talk to you about was there seemed to be this kind of change in growth tactics. Yeah. And I think a lot of us have tried TV. We've tried, we're very good at Facebook and Instagram. Yeah. Try like affiliate. There's all the classic kind of growth tactics that people have in the toolbox. But there's also this sense that it's getting tougher and tougher. And Facebook are building more and more of the intelligence into their algorithms. Right. Yeah, and in many ways, sure. I feel a little bit that we are kind of getting to a point that I'm sure some of the big companies were when they felt that television was no longer kind of working. Yeah. They're a little bit like, well, we know that Facebook and Instagram will be less efficient for us, but we don't know what the next thing is. Right. And so you kind of need to come up with what's the new way of doing it. And since you're a crazy young marketeer in many ways. For sure. I'll reveal everything. Uh, there, there are no secrets. So could you maybe make a little introduction? Yeah. My name's Gabe. Uh, I run a small company called Mischief. And really, at the end of the day, what Mischief is, is an attention and fame machine. I started my career at BuzzFeed. I wasn't on the list team or the quiz team or the video team. There was a different team where the idea was, how do you create experiences and tell stories in different formats. That has long since shuttered, but I left and ended up creating Mischief, which is sort of the continuation of that grand vision. But really, at the end of the day, I've always just been addicted to trolling people online in a healthy, positive, uplifting manner and figuring out how can I take technology and devices around me to create experiences that just get a ton of attention. And when I say that, I mean like getting on The Ellen Show, getting press, going true viral where people like have to actually share your stuff. You're kind of like a white hat troll. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like if we love going after the bad guys, we love just sort of like making fun of culture, but in a way that's like not necessarily a downer, it's just sort of very insightful. Like in a way, I think mischief creates a lot of things that solve or address first world problems. And then we figure out how to monetize it from there. So generally, I don't talk a lot about the work that I do. I don't have a personal website. Um, and it was only very recently would I even like post my work on my own social media. Usually I would just say nothing and wait for people in my network to somehow find it and start sharing. Best feeling ever. And in fact, when I was at BuzzFeed, I would do that a lot and just kind of like look around and wait for every, all of my coworkers to stop working because they'd find what I had made and write about it. But they had no idea it was coming from within. That's hilarious. I think you've told me once that that happened, right? You had loaned something and somebody was sending it around internally. Yep, it was uh, like six years ago. You know when you're typing to someone in iMessage, they'll see uh, that infinite like iMessage bubble yeah, yeah. animation? 
So I made the GIF version of that <laughs> so that when you send it to someone, it actually like, it auto plays as we know GIFs do. So people would actually think you're forever texting them. So I like threw that on a website. I seeded it to like people anonymously and then watched BuzzFeed pretty much like quit working for the day <laughs> because they wanted to be like first to talk about it and like write about it. And even like Jonah Peretti was using it on his friends and his sister screenshots were flying everywhere on reddit people were complaining at the apple store like people working at the apple stores were complaining saying why are so many customers coming in saying their phones are broken <laughs> because of this gift and you started off by making a lot of campaigns for a, a lot of brands yeah. for sure so even like before the brand started getting in touch i was making things like uh let's see trump announced he was running for president I bought friends who like Trump.com and redirected that to your Facebook graph of your friends who have liked Donald Trump. <laughs> and for like $11.99, that was my highest ROI project of all time. Because <laughs> within hours, the, you know, pretty much everything had shut down talking about that link. NPR like talked about it on their show about how this was like dividing the country because it's like, honestly, I probably did more harm than good on that one and I apologize. It was stuff like that, like what, what are the storytelling devices around us? How do I pull it together and do something that stands out beyond like an Instagram post or a blog? Another one was um, my, my wife and I were talking a lot about like the gender pay gap and how do we like bring light to that issue. So we created a tip calculator that deducts from the tip if your server identifies as female and it would deduct based on the percentage of the gender pay gap. That's funny. And of course, people were pissed when they heard about it, but then they were like, wait, I'm not mad at this. I'm mad at the status quo. Like, I'm mad at the world that I live in. And we were able to create an app that told that story in an incredibly effective manner. Again, the ROI story, right? Zero audience, we didn't need it because it naturally aggregated millions of audience overnight purely as a function of the story. We've definitely seen success with the same type of approach like at Bark we for example started to make toys inside toys we had like Consuelo the cactus yeah. uh, she's happy on the outside but she's sad on the inside yeah. and when reddit discovered it obviously a lot of people got excited about it uh, so that's obviously more feature with inside your core product uh, you know you mentioned the Trump stuff we launched the Doc Null, the Donald Trump chew toy. Oh, so good. Um, and the Hillary Kitten uh, chew toy, so yeah. people could decide. And, and so we could definitely, we've definitely tried also to see, can we make products that kind of like tie into the zeitgeist? And then you kind of become part of the conversation and, and, and then you get people to pay attention to you as a company. And, and I, I think that's the cool thing about how you've approached it versus a lot of other places. The fact that you're trying and you're doing something different, honestly, the, the bar is very low right now because everyone just expects a cute Instagram ad with like pastel colors and like really good lighting. Um, it doesn't take much to stand out. It's just people are very, very afraid to do it. I love the New York, sorry, I love that New York like traffic. It's like the lights are only kind of advisory. They're, like, yeah, people, they're like gentle guardrails. People have yeah. absolutely, not a single like it's everybody feels that they are so busy that they 
really kind of like a mandate that you go There's first. There's no rules, but it, it kind of works. It kind of works. Yeah. I've made friends with plenty of people I've bumped into <laughs> really? in intersections. Yeah. We like give each other the finger and then we're like, oh, cool. So what process do you follow when you try to come up with this thing? Does, do they just come to you? So it's, there's a couple of things. I think as a company, the most important thing to do is A, make sure it's a healthy creative culture because creatives can sort of have this pressure that A, they need to compete with one another to have the best ideas. They can be extra hard on themselves. And it's also like incredibly subjective that you'll, you'll go to a lot of agencies and like creatively driven media companies and the culture actually sucks because it's just not healthy. So for me, it's how do I create the freedom to just like be the most creative version of yourself while also balancing that with structure and methodology to ensure that an output comes out. So uh, the best example is we have a whiteboard that's dedicated to spontaneity of ideas. I erase it every single Friday and put in an idea pool, which I have a process to like flow through and sort of cut down into our pipeline. But that's sort of a free space where at the end of each week, we sit in front of this whiteboard and we're like, what crazy shit did we come up with this week that had no rhyme or reason to, like today I looked at it and someone wrote CBD infused communion wafers. <laughs> Which you might see here in a couple of months because I think the CBD game is about tapped out but that one might keep it alive. Um, so that's sort of like, that's the system I have set up to sort of keep that creative energy always flowing. We're just a bunch of hackers. Like we are, we're culture hackers Everything is a storytelling device. Um, the power of distribution is pretty much infinite right now on the internet as we know it. Um, so it's, it's a good group of people. The environment is healthy. And then I have these structured brainstorms, um, which I mentioned to you a bit last time, the idea of the FPP and the RPP. We do one of those brainstorms every week where the FPP is a fame-producing product. It's a chance for us to brainstorm around ideas that will basically just generate a lot of attention, get press, get, like, get a lot of shares and engagement, but we don't conflate that process with the idea of how do we monetize this? How do we boost retention? How do we boost growth? Because I like to create opportunities to just see where the magic goes and we can refine as we go. But the other side, the RPPs, those are revenue producing products where that set of brainstorming and all the thinking around those are more about, okay, how do we make sure it's still a mischief idea, but we're building like growth channels around it. We're distributing it. We're finding ways to monetize. I need some water because it is so hot here. Oh. I got some here. You were ready. It's a little heavy. <laughs> it's very, I get like sweat in my eye now. It's good though. Like I said, I love how much it sucks. <laughs> okay, so, so you've been doing all these different uh, products. Do you have a few more examples of other stuff that you've oh, done or sure. other things just because they're... Yeah, I'll, I'll tell you like a digital one. Um, this is like a personal favorite that I really wish I had done back in high school. So obviously everyone growing up has had to write papers for school. You, in high school and college, there are like requirements, like it's written in Times New Roman, font size 12, double spaced, whatever. And we've all sort of like dealt with this experience where the teacher's like, okay, I need a 10 page paper on my desk by next Wednesday. 
And of course, we all have our little hacks. You modify the period sizes, you like mess with the margins. Like we've all kind of been there, especially me, because I wasn't the greatest student. So last year, we had this idea of like, wait a minute, what if we deconstructed Times New Roman as a font and rebuilt it from the ground up by stretching each character ever so delicately <laughs> so that at the end of the day, you have a font that gives you like 30% extra space for the same amount of words. It's the supersized font. Yeah, exactly. But it's not visible to the naked eye unless like basically you're a well-established font designer. <laughs> so we built it, we called it Times Newer Roman. You can download it on the, on the internet. And we just sort of like let it fly. So it's a product that serves a utility, but it tells the story of just like pure mischief. Yeah. Pure like, like pull one over, like stick it to the man, <laughs> go out and smoke weed and drink beer, whatever, <laughs> whatever you do in college. And naturally, like the, the concept alone just carried it to really big places. My dad found out about it because he watched it on Good Morning America. He was like, wait, I remember you telling me about that like when you were thinking about it a year ago. You want to take this on Yeah, we'll take a picture. Do you want it on the... This thing? Okay, we'll find... Oh, iPhone storage is full. I got two. <laughs> Have a good one. That's I love hilarious. I love Brooklyn Bridge. There's like literally 800 billion pictures being taken here a day. Yeah. On the phone stuff that was broken, back in the day when I was at MTV, we made an app where you could install it and then you could prank a friend. And there was a show at the time called Punked, which was kind of oh, like for a. Sure. Um, I remember and, that. And so we made a game where. You get a link from a friend, then you download it, then you could install it, it's called MTV Street Dancer. And you would choose you want to be male or female. And then it would, basically you press a few buttons and they'll come up with like the blue screen of death. And it will say, hey, you're out of memory. Do you want to delete all your contacts and all your messages? And you would press no, and it just looked like it was deleting. Nice. And people would like freak out. That's actually And then great. after like five seconds, it would say, hey, nothing's wrong. You've just been punked. You want to punk somebody else? <laughs> We That's launched good. that, but we had to pull it because we left too long. So people were starting to like destroy their phone and like try to kind of get rid of them. And That's amazing. Another app that I never did, but I always wanted to do was when the iPhone came out and it had like the thing that allowed you to, to kind of like see where, what direction it was facing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wanted to get an app to see how high you dared throwing it in the air. Oh, yeah. That would be yeah, fun. That would be a really good one. I think when I look at businesses that makes product businesses, the metrics that I find interesting is the CAC, so how much does it cost to get a customer. Right. Yeah. It's the LTV, so how much money can you make on it, yep. basically. And the NPS, right. do people like it and want to talk about it. Right. And maybe you put in the TAM, the total accessible market size, if you want to sure. like, evaluate if you should do it or not. But the three first ones I think are the most important. And so for me, that creates like a constant loop of figuring out how do I get closer to my customers so I can understand what they think about and what they want. Yep. And then when I know what they think about and what they want, then how do I infuse that into a product development cycle so that I can build that as quickly as possible in a sustainable way right. so I can create like a positive loop around those two things. I think to your point that you guys very much have kind of nailed 
the what does the internet kind of care about. Yeah. And I think that might be just by intuition. Uh, Largely so far. What do you tap into to understand what is the nerve of the internet? For sure. I mean, honestly, like up until now, it has been purely insight driven. Um, there hasn't been much of a like data-backed approach to coming up with the ideas. And I actually think that's a strength, right? Because right now, the unfair advantage that we have is that pure black magic of figuring out what people are going to love and being able to pour that fuel on the fire. Yeah. But in this next iteration of Mischief, the idea will be how do we figure out what people are into, but what there's less content about and sort of like where those intersect and use that to sort of guide our brainstorms to just further like optimize the machine. I think at the end of the day, what Mischief is going to be is this commerce engine that that pairs cultural trends and insights with products and then sets them up to distribute at scale in a way that embraces the decentralized nature of commerce. Because right now, the sales channels are, are becoming infinite. Like now you can start to sell on Instagram, you can sell on Amazon, you can sell directly on your website. I'm selling decapitated swans out of a bodega on Bowery right now. <laughs> So imagine if your products actually inspired people to create content and distribute them all over the internet, and at the same time you're you're actually like pushing something that you can sell. Yeah, and I think that is the future of like of, of honestly commerce in general, which is just leaning into that decentralized nature of content and commerce. And in the mischief way, ultimately what we'll have is a media and entertainment brand on top of this commerce engine. But what I think what you say that's unique is that the media and commerce brand is one thing. I think historically, and again, that's They're what BuzzFeed have been trying, is that you had this idea that you can build a lot of attention over on the left side, and then you can hand it over to the other side. And I think in many ways, the whole advertising industry is based on this idea of saying, you know, let's get people in, clickbait them with something they think is interesting, and while they're there, push you know, a, a JPEG in their faces and trying to get them to do something else, where obviously increasingly people are getting sophisticated and go like, hey, wait a minute, you know, you lured me in with the promise of pictures of cats, and now you're trying to sell me you know, whatever, so therefore that is disingenuous. Yeah, the days of the old bait and switch are over. People are too smart and their expectations are too great, and their attention spans are too small. So how quick do you think all this is going to go? What I'm definitely tapping into is this idea that the half-life cycle of both products and marketing tactics is getting shorter and shorter. Yeah, so sure. we read about like affiliate or Facebook ads or some kind of like smart way of tag a friend on Instagram and then uh, it used to be something that we could mine for a long time. We used to look at those as the answers but now I think those are optimizations but we don't have the answers anymore and I actually think like to answer your question in the next, say, two years, we're going to see sort of a rebirth of like really incredible creative output, commercial output, content output, because I think all of this sort of goes in cycles. And right now, we've sort of commoditized literally everything to the point where we're annoyed, we're irritated, we're, we know that people are pulling tricks. And so really all that's left for marketers, product people, founders, entrepreneurs 
is to actually just put some soul back into their thoughts again. People feel the pain, like it's getting more expensive to acquire people on Facebook and the size of Facebook is decreasing. So it's just like... I feel like we, at Barg for sure, we were lucky that, I don't know, we didn't think it would be that big a business. And so we build a business around what we would like people to do to us. Yeah. And so our happy team, which is our customer service team, but more than that, they talk to about a third of our customers every month. Wow. They were always kind of like the, the heart and soul of our organization. Right. And at the time when we set it up, it didn't make that much sense to overinvest, as it were at the time, that much in just talking to our customers. But I think now that everybody is really demanding that the company that they're dealing with and give their money to is somebody who gives a shit, yep. um, I think you know that's been our secret sauce in many ways. I think you guys had integrity from the beginning and you maintained it, and people can tell. How much do you think this is a generational thing? Because I think, how old are you now? Uh, 29. 29. So you're actually getting a little bit on the high end, but yeah. And so I was about to come up with a thesis, but it might not work. Because you're, are you Gen Z or are you millennial? You're Gen Z, right? Or they're like just on the cross? Yeah, I'm like in both worlds. I've seen, I've invested in a few companies lately by young founders, like yeah. early 20s. Yeah. And there's something that is fascinating with them, which is a little bit, it's like they've thrown the playbook out and they're a little bit starting from scratch. Yeah. Like I, I sent somebody your website the other day and he says, I'm not sure, you know, I dare kind of being on it. Like basically that he was worried that he'll get a virus from being on it for too long. Good. And then I, you know, I, I have did another investment. They're incredible. They're super smart and they're really, but their website has also looked like something that is, doesn't have this polishness to it. Yeah. And so maybe we start with the aesthetics part and then kind of move into that. I can't help feel that every time I see these new sites, they are to like the Scandinavian designer in me, they're crazy and wild and just kind of like random. Yep. Explain that to me, oh, please. Oh, for sure. There's even a word for it. <laughs> huh? Uh, so we're actually sort of seeing like the mainstream adoption of what you're referring to, which is brutalism, brutalist design. The idea that you can cut all the flair, it's the best definition for brutalist design is a website without any CSS, <laughs> right? Like there's no markup, it just is what it is. And it was like very cool, very underground about three years ago. I was like big into it because I was not a designer. So I was like, oh cool, <laughs> this plays to my strengths. But what you're seeing is just a reaction from the commoditization of like design trends, right? Like you see, the hot branding agencies just cranking out brands like a factory and they all sort of look the same. They're all using this like chunky Gotham font, these cool like colors. Um, like you, you, you look on the subway and a lot of the ads kind of look the same. I could wipe the brands from them, put them in front of you and you wouldn't be able to tell me whose was whose. Yeah. And so the, the shift you're seeing is, I don't know if it's as much of a like Gen Z generational thing it's just a response to everything looking the same. And you're, you're gonna start seeing that on Instagram too. The day of like the polished influencer who's like got the perfectly edited photo in front of like a LA brick wall with wings spray painted and the graffiti, like that, that, those days are actually quickly coming to a close because we're tired of the insincerity of it. It lacks soul. And I, people have actually written some thought pieces on this of, um, 
we're gonna start to see more influencers just making more brutal content. Like, quicker, less thought, less editing. But honestly, I think, you know, if, if all the trends start heading in, in that direction, all of a sudden everything will start to look the same again. Yeah, yeah. And we'll veer back. It's all a cycle. So it's just kind of like, can you identify where we are in the cycle and either capitalize on it right now or prepare for the shift? And I think right now that like that shift is happening. So, so today you launched your first real homemade product. RPP. Yeah, and that's one for profit. Yeah, 100%. What is it? So it's, uh, it's summer, right? People are planning for July 4th here in a couple weeks. They're going to the Hamptons on weekends. Influencer culture is at full tilt right now with the classic pool shot on a swan float. So naturally my group at Mischief is, we're like cynical in a playful way. We're just kind of over all of that. So we've designed and, and manufactured our own line of swan pool floats where the heads are detached from the bodies. <laughs> you can see like a red ring around like where the bone could be. It's, it's not as gruesome as it sounds and no swans were harmed in the making of these. <laughs> um, in my mind, this is what ends the influencer pool swan float trend. <laughs> I would love this to just be the death knell of that sort of uh, so are people buying the product or are they buying the Instagram moment of themselves looking yeah. interesting? It's a little bit of both, right? Yeah, we're trying to appeal to anything but your most pragmatic side of your brain. Because Amazon already owns that, right? Like yeah. there's, there's no point in competing with that unless like that's just something you're really into. But apart from that side of your brain, there are so many other sides of your brain that you use to make decisions. That's how you fall in love. That's how you wake up one day and you quit your job or start a new life or move somewhere. All of the sort of inhibitions that we usually try to avoid but often lean into and that creates the magic of our own existence, right? Those are the stories that you look back on and you tell to people like 20 years, like 20 years ago, oh, I did this crazy thing and it was the best memory of my life. Is the mischief type of product marketing, is that a young person's game? No, not at all. We're not creating commentary on youth culture. We're, we're creating commentary on like eternal human insights. Like we did this project with, with Casper where it was a website that would help you fake a social life on Snapchat from your bed because on Fridays I feel pressure to go out but sometimes I'm just too tired and I want to chill. That's an old person's yeah. sentiment, right? Um, well, and it's and not young, something else. It's always been that way for me. <laughs> And so that's not even something, like we managed to adapt it to this generation with the Snapchat angle, but the insight and the cultural commentary is actually rather eternal. And the best mischief ideas play into that. The font that I spoke about earlier, sure it's about a font that are, like, resonates with high schoolers and college students, but at the end of the day it's the story of like, why do all the bullshit work when you can come up with a quick hack? Like get away with something, pull, like, pull a fast one. And these are the things that I think separate mischief like narrative driven products from pure stunts because they're based on insights that are a little bit more eternal than say Logan Paul going to Times Square and pulling someone's pants down on camera. What is the first step for kind of like learning to think like this or learning to do like this? Oh man, it's kind of hard. Huh? It's kind of hard. How do you teach someone how to do this from scratch? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I think if I had to teach someone how to do this from scratch, if I was to sit a college student down and say, here's how you come up with a mischief idea, 
really it's just sort of like narrowing down a theme. So let's say uh, you look around in Times Square and people are always like taking selfies with superheroes or like Sesame Street characters, right? That's something that's always happening. So sort of like map that out on a whiteboard as the topic, people taking selfies in Times Square. And then just start plotting out all the mannerisms. Start plotting out the things that you observe, things that you see, things that you find amusing, and more importantly, problems. Identify the first world problems. And if you can make a good list of those, like one classic first world problem with the Times Square analogy. There are too many tourists and not enough Captain Americas or Elmos, right? Yeah. Cool, map that down and then just start coming up with solutions and tying them to those problems. Eventually, you'll come up with something that generally will involve an input and an output, some sort of interaction, some sort of experience. It's that, funny because in many ways, we pre-hype things the same way about building companies. Like, what is the problem that you can identify? Yep. Because ideas are fine, but really problem statements are gold. For sure. Um, and I think the same way, how do you become medium agnostic? One of the reasons why I think Bark has been successful is that we just want to make dogs happy, and ideally our own dogs. And we never saw ourselves as a toy business or a treat business. Right. And so we started to build parks and content, all this stuff, because in our world, we were just trying to hit this problem from any angle we could. What's the next product that's coming out? We, uh, we created a line of uh, steel five-pound phone cases. <laughs> uh, people are on their phone all the time. You might as well like turn that into a workout. And we've just seen this trend of like accessible fitness, right? People will pay thousands of dollars for a electric motorbike in their living rooms or like a mirror that tells you how to work out. It's like, dude, you're on your phone all the time anyways. You might as well like pump some iron while you're at it. Oh, if you do a podcast, you can walk, let's see, four kilometers. Oh man, well, I don't have to go to the gym now. <laughs> I, I wasn't going to, the gym. to anyways. Okay, dude, I think, uh, I think I got everything that I needed from you. I didn't even offer you or any coffee, but you got a nice pre-hyped swag. Cool water bottle. Yeah, so there's that. Awesome. I'll, uh, maybe I should just put this up and then I slide to pause. I think that's it. Oh, cool. Thank you so much for listening. I got a favor to ask. If you like the podcast, then it would be awesome if you could share it on social or rate the show so others can find it too. Also, I'd love some feedback. Just tweet me at at Wordlin. I'll be back with more entrepreneurial walks and talks very soon.